So today we're looking at a really important question, and the question is, if Jesus is able, and we've been singing about it really uh, throughout this whole morning, if Jesus is able to deliver us from all evil, then why doesn't he just do it? And we're looking at that question because we are in a passage that's in a series uh, uh, that is called Jesus the Miracle Worker, and that's part of a larger series where we're working our way through the entire New Testament. Um, a friend and I were recently talking, he has a neighbor who is dying, is in the last stages of cancer, is, gonna, is young, is going to be leaving his family behind, uh, children behind. And he was having a conversation uh, when he was visiting the home with somebody else who was visiting the home, not somebody he knew, but they have this mutual friend. And in the conversation, the other person shared how his father died when he was uh, in his teens and that he had been angry at God ever since. And, and then he asked the question, he said, you know, why? Why doesn't, why does, why doesn't God do something? So my friend said, I, I was just at a complete loss to, to know what to say. And he said, all, all I could say was, I don't know the mind of God. But I know God loves him. And if God doesn't heal him, he must have a good reason. Uh, so I, I'm listening, that's all you could say? I'm like, that's perfect. <laughs> uh, not too much, not too little. Uh, situations like that, when people are asking the why question in the midst of grief, they're not, really, they're not really looking for a deep theological or philosophical answers. If we're going to even say anything at all, uh, we ought to keep it pretty simple. It really should be a heart-to-heart -heart conversation, uh, not a mind-to-heart conversation. Uh, but I love what my friend said, and actually, I, I think I have it memorized, <laughs> uh, because it states what I think is really important. My friend's answer focused on God's love without discarding his sovereignty. Now, what does sovereignty mean? It means God's rulership. He is sovereign over all creation. We don't do God any favors in situations like this uh, by limiting his power, almost like he can't do anything, and some people do that. It, it's not biblical, but it's important to be biblically sensitive in a situation like that. We've, many of us have found ourselves in those same circumstances. We're not looking for a long and complex philosophical argument. In this week's passage, we're going to see that Jesus does have the power to deliver us from all evil, but the passage is also going to explain in part, just a little bit in part, it's going to raise the curtain a little bit into the mind of God. It's going to, it's going to show us in part why it is that he doesn't just do it. Why doesn't he just now deliver us from all evil? So please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. And it, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, we have Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. You can grab one of those. Uh, it's on page 1006 in those Bibles. And um, if you have a smartphone or tablet device, we are using the NIV, the New International Version. And if you're new with us, inside the green New Here brochure, there is a sermon application guide. And uh, this uh, has questions on the inside that are family discussion questions. So if you have kids right now down in the children's wing, they're studying the same passage. And so we do that almost every week here, so you have an opportunity to talk about it with them. There's also personal reflection questions because this is about bringing the story of God to life. It's not about just getting more information in our heads. All right, so we pick up Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. 
They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. So they as the disciples and Jesus. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. I have a a few vivid memories from, uh, not a lot of vivid memories, but a few vivid memories from my uh, childhood, from like, like preschool, kindergarten days and that sort of thing. And one of them is in a house that we lived in that across the street there were, there were porches in all the houses and there was a man that would sit in the porch across the street. Anytime I would be out in the yard playing or something and we would lock eyes and he saw that I saw him, he would look at me and he would do this. And I am pretty certain today that he was joking. There's no reason why he wouldn't have been joking about that. I wasn't like a bad kid or doing anything wrong. Um, I'm pretty certain too that he didn't know how scared I was of him because he was doing that. And so one day I went over to the neighbor's house. Our landlord lived in the house next door. His name was Mr. Kaiser. I remember that because we rented the second floor of the house and we've always referred to that time in our lives as when we lived in Mr. Kaiser's house. So I'm over at Mr. Kaiser's house with my mom, and in walks in the guy from across the street. And uh, all I can remember is wanting to bolt, <laughs> just get out of that room, because that guy was dangerous and hated me. Uh, but then he got a big smile on his face, and he said, hi, and all of a sudden I realized, okay, he's okay, he's harmless, he, I, th- I think even at that age, I, I got that he was, he was joking. So imagine with me being a kid in the town that borders the hills and the cemetery where this guy lives, this demon-possessed man. Imagine, you know that there's a man. You've heard him. You've heard him at night wailing. You have seen his blo- his, his, that he's bloody, that he cuts himself Um, You've heard that he has like superhuman strength. That means, you know, my daddy probably can't even protect me from him, which we think, you know, when we're little, you know, that our dads can protect us from anything. But this guy can break chains. Imagine the fear that they would have had day in and day out listening to this guy. Think of the parents wondering if this guy comes into town. I mean, he could hurt one one of my children. He, li- he lives right there in the hills. We can hear him. Uh, think about his family. So think about the fact that he probably had family in that town, maybe a mom or a dad that would be reminded with his wailing of the condition that he was in. Maybe a husband, I mean a wife, maybe, maybe children. And and. And they, just think of their experience before he was finally banished from the town. Kind of the difficult life that maybe they were living, the violence that faced them, you know, almost every single day. This man was demon-possessed, and not every person um, in this condition is demon-possessed, not even in the Scripture, uh, not in the New Testament, but this man was. He was demon-possessed. Look at verse 6. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and he fell on his knees in front of him. 
He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send him out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding in the nearby hills. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission. And the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. That's an interesting reaction to this kind of miracle. They look at the man dressed and in his right mind, And their reaction is fear. And that's the typical reaction throughout the scripture from beginning to end when when someone is exposed to the power of God. Uh, The disciples felt that way when Jesus calmed the storm. The Israelites felt that way every time God would show up in some mighty and powerful way. They would fall to the ground. They would be afraid. They thought they would be undone by the power of God. But here he was, this demon-possessed man, cleaned up and in his right mind. So uh, pastor and author Colin Smith, he, um, he says this, think of the possibilities. If Christ can pacify the man who was a terror to his community, what about the deranged gunman? What about the suicide bomber? Imagine how it would be if each of them were restored to their right mind. If Jesus is Lord over the demons, he can deliver us from their destructive power. Now interestingly, this story is bunched in with three other stories of of this miracle working Jesus, Jesus working miracles. And as you look at the four stories, you almost get a a panoramic view of all the evils and uh, all the things that evil has brought to our world, all the painful things and the suffering that that, that, that have come to the world. So uh, a story before this one is Jesus calms the storm. And uh, you can just think of the possibilities. He has the power to subdue a storm. That means he has the power to subdue the fires out in California, um, the earthquakes that are happening around, that happen around the world, the hurricanes and the damage that they do, the tornadoes and the damage that they do. Think of the death toll each year from these forces, these forces of nature, and what Jesus could do with these forces of nature. Um, the story after this one is a story uh, of, two, uh, of a healing and a raising someone from the dead. So a woman is healed from a condition that she has, and a little girl is raised from the dead by this um, miracle-working Jesus. Uh, so in, in a sense, you can see um, Jesus has the power to overcome disasters, natural disasters, uh, demons, uh, disease, disability, death. He has the power to overcome all those things. So it raises a question, and every time we read about these things, it 
almost surely raises a question in your mind, this burning question, if Jesus is able to deliver us from all evil, then why doesn't he just do it? And that peak comes in the next verses. So look at verse 16 as we continue the story. Those who had seen it, so they were afraid when they see this, and then those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. So people have come, now they go back and they tell everyone else. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. And there it is. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. Again, Colin Smith. You would think that when Christ delivered the town from public enemy number one, they would say, please stay. Imagine what Christ might have done about other problems in their area. But they asked him to go. It's important to grasp this. They were pleading with Jesus to leave. Pleading. This story illustrates something that we read in John's Gospel. In John 3.19, so shortly after it says, for God so loved the world that he sent his son, it says this. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Do you think it's any different today? Do you think that verse only applies to when Jesus came into the world, or do you think it's any, and it's different today? I don't think it's different today. See, this Jesus comes into their town, and he comes into our world as well. And he is, he claims to be, and he demonstrates that he is Lord. He's sovereign, he's ruler. He's the leader over our lives. And his claims leave no room for him simply being an alternative to whatever it is you believe in, an add-on to what you believe in, just a preference, a personal preference. He doesn't leave any room for that. You can't have Jesus and something else and still have Jesus. And Jesus says that. You, you, can't. you can't. have You can't have your heart divided like that. He, he, won't, he won't put up with it because he is Lord. He is sovereign. And that's not how most people think in the cities that we live in, in the towns that we live in. Um, that's not how people in many churches think. It's not how some of you think. You don't think of Jesus as Lord. You think of him as an alternative or a personal preference or an add-on to whatever it is that you believe in. But this Jesus, the Jesus in this passage, the Jesus that we know, this Jesus is Lord. He's not simply a religious preference or an alternative. Jesus comes into the town and he disrupts, you could say he disrupts the pork industry uh, in that town. And then he declares by his actions that something new has arrived that they have to grapple with. Something new has arrived that they have to grapple with. Someone has arrived who has power and has authority from God. Someone that we surrender to. Someone that we submit to. Someone that we follow and that's not what those people wanted. When they see his power and they see his claim, I mean, the demon-possessed man knows who he is. He declares who Jesus is. The people are like, we don't want God here. We don't want the power of God here. We want our lives. Um, you can leave, and it's no different today. It's not 
really what most people are looking for. So back then and now, today, we see Jesus, for the time being, respecting the wishes of a world that doesn't want him around. Okay, that's not the whole answer to why doesn't he just do it now, but that is part of the answer. It's a consistent answer throughout Scripture that God, for now, is not going to force himself into the scene in such a way that it makes everything right. Because in making everything right, you have to deal with everything that is wrong. And you have to deal with it with justice and with grace. Because that's who God is. So a little bit of a peek behind the curtain um, to understand why he doesn't do it all now. So our world loves darkness, but Jesus offers light in the darkness. Even though we love darkness, it doesn't mean that we have to grasp onto it and not let it go. There is all kinds of opportunities for us to... To, to go into the light. And so what Jesus offers to a people who love darkness and are living in darkness, he offers the light of his love. And so I think of what my friend said um, when he said, I don't know the mind of God, but I know God loves him. So a few verses before that, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And that whole light theme comes, you know, right after those verses, but it starts at the very beginning of the Gospel of John. So John's Gospel introduces it, the beginning of the story, uh, in the first chapter, it says, the light shines in the darkness, speaking of Christ, and the darkness has not overcome it. It might have seemed like, you know, he went to the cross, but it did not overcome it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world, speaking of Christ, and to all who did receive him. A lot rejected him, it says in, those pas- in that passage. But to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So we, we learn it's by believing in him, John 3.16, by putting our faith in Christ that we are made right with God because of what Jesus came and did for us. We celebrate that light uh, every week here in communion. And so when we, we celebrate communion together, we take the bread, remembering the body of Christ was broken for us, for our sakes, and we take uh, the cup and we remember that his blood was shed for the remission of our sins. And so we have, in that, we, have, we are made right with God. When we receive what Jesus has done, when we put our faith in what Jesus has done, we become children of God, we become, we become his. Jesus breaks through the darkness. And you don't have to live in the darkness. You don't have to, you don't have to be among the people that are pleading with him to, to go away, get away from me. You can be one that receives the light and lives in the light, experiencing him and experiencing his love. Now, Jesus also offers to, to us, living in darkness, uh, he offers light at the end of the tunnel. And so the whole Bible story, you know, begins with creation and ends with new creation. And the whole story is moving toward this end when God will make everything right. So for right now, he is not imposing his will completely fully. But a day is coming, he says, where he will. He will make, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And the scripture even says that there won't be need for a sun. There will be a new earth. Heaven and earth will come together. There won't be need for a son because God will be our light who lives with us. 
And it also says this, is the light at the end of the tunnel. In Revelation 21.4, it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Something new has come. The new age comes in all of its fullness. So as we've been working our way through Jesus and uh, Jesus' life and his teaching, we've been sharing some tools with you. And tools are are things that you can use to um, explain biblical concepts, to remember them, to be able to explain them to your kids, to maybe, you know, write them on a napkin while you're helping someone grow in their discipleship. And one of the tools that we talk a lot about here, certainly if you've gone through our Story of God course, uh, we plant ourselves here for quite a while because it's such an important tool to be able to understand uh, the New Testament worldview, which is that, that um, we are living in the already not yet. We're living in the already, not yet. So the tool looks like this, this simple, simple version of it. So you have the first coming of Christ. The expectation by uh, his fellow Jews was that when the Messiah comes, he's going to make everything right. And so you take these two lines and you put them together and you have what was the thinking at that time. And so you have the old age and then when Messiah comes, you have the new age. But Jesus and the rest of the New Testament explain, and this is extremely why we plant ourselves in this, in the story of God, it's an extremely important biblical concept that when we get it wrong, we make all kinds of mistakes, all kinds, it's like a domino, we get all kinds of other things wrong. And there's a lot of people today who get this wrong and are teaching wrong things to people that take away their hope, ultimately. And so Jesus said, no, there's going to be two comings. Uh, it's going to be my first coming, and I am going to, and the old age is going to begin to pass away, but I'm going to come, and I'm going to bring the new age. The kingdom of God is here in him, and the kingdom of God is expressed in us. So the rule of God is expressed in us, and we do the kinds of things in his power that reflect his rule, not waiting for the end, but now, his rule now. And so we have the new age that has begun. But we've got this dotted line because it's not here in all of its fullness. Day is coming when Jesus returns, and that's when he's going to make everything right. And this gives hope. This gives a light at the end of the tunnel. This takes away the stigma of when something bad happens to us or someone we love, that it is our fault in some kind of way. No, it's because, it's because we're still... The old age, we're still fighting. Um, we're still in a battle. Satan still has power. Evil still has power. Um, but it also does away with the thought that God, you know, isn't going to do anything till here. No, God can work. God does work. And he still works miracles. It's just not going to take care of everything. It's not like everything is going to be taken care of for us. Now, we're waiting for that day. And so when we're in the middle of struggles, it's not like God punishing us. I mean, sometimes it's, you know, it's because of our own bad choices. Sometimes it can be the discipline and, of a loving God. But most of the time, it's just because we live in a world that's broken. And we look forward to the day when God is going to make it right. And he is going to make it right. And that's our hope. That's the hope that the New Testament talks about. We can have a confident hope of what's coming of God making it right. So it gives us a light at the end of the tunnel. So Jesus, to, to those of us who love darkness, who are living in darkness, he also offers light of lights. 
and we are those lights. So we are the lights and we offer the light of Christ. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. You are the light of the world. He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to us who are his disciples. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put, a bowl on, uh, put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We are the lights who bring into our broken world the light of Christ. God calls us to live on mission for him in our schools, in our workplaces, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our cities. He calls us to love our cities with his love and in the power of his love. So turn back to Matthew 5 again, and we'll pick up the story in verse 18. It's not over yet. The people have pled for him to go, and he obliges. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. This is a man who's ready to be his disciple like the other disciples that followed him from one place. It's like, what is he leaving? He's, not, he's leaving a cemetery and a hill, <laughs> living outdoors. He doesn't even have to sell everything to follow him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away. And he began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. So he goes from this, this group of cities known as the Decapolis. And he goes from city to city. And he begins to tell his story. So imagine when he starts out in his own hometown. You're a kid in that town. And imagine you're walking down the street one day with some of your friends. And now you see the guy that you called the maniac <laughs> walking towards you. And uh, he looks cleaned up. Uh, he looks like he's in his right mind, but you can still see the scars, and you know who he is and his superhuman strength and his, uh, you know, scary behavior. And like me at Mr. Kaiser's house with the neighbor, <laughs> you're ready to run. But you hold on and you just watch a little bit more, and you see that he's got a big smile on his face. And you hear him talking to someone, and you hear him telling his story of being transformed by this Jesus who came and changed everything for him. And you don't run. You see the light of Christ. I'm going to pray the prayer that I prayed at the beginning of the service. Um, and we're just going to kind of just live in that prayer for a few moments. As we, as we close today. So please join me in prayer.